0: You're listening to Pastor David Gusick preach through the Book of Acts at Calvary Chapel, Santa Barbara. The theme from the Book of Acts is Spirit Driven. All right, Acts chapter 5. You ready for this? Open up your Bibles there. Acts chapter 5, starting at verse 27. Father in heaven, bless us now as we give attention to your word. You have spoken it from heaven And here we are on earth now, Lord, giving our attention to it, asking you to speak to our lives. And Father, I pray that there's probably some here this morning, Lord, they're unfamiliar with your word. Uh, Maybe they have just a cursory knowledge of a few Bible stories. But Lord, this, this is pretty new or pretty strange to them. I pray, God, that you would speak clearly enough to speak to every heart here. That's our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. The book of Acts is, of course, the story of how the Holy Spirit of God worked through the earliest Christians to make a huge difference in the world and to send out the gospel throughout all parts of the Roman world at that time. And in our verse-by-verse study through the book of Acts, right now we're still pretty early in the book, The the, the gospel has not gone forth out of Jerusalem. We're still dealing just with this one particular city. It's going to go out later on in the book of Acts. It's going to go out beyond Jerusalem to Judea, to to Samaria, to to what was known in those days in the Roman Empire, the uttermost parts of the earth. It'll go there eventually. But right now in Acts chapter 5, we're still right in the middle of Jerusalem. And God is working in and through Jerusalem. Those early Christians, and in particular, we have a focus this morning upon the leaders of those early Christians, a group of men that we call the apostles, who were mostly, except for one exception, those 12 disciples that followed Jesus around during the days of Jesus's earthly ministry. Well, the apostles got into some trouble for preaching Jesus. There they were very boldly out on the temple mount preaching about who Jesus was and what he had done for the world and dying on the cross and rising from the dead. And the religious establishment of that day didn't like it. It upset their apple cart. It disturbed the status quo. And so they they arrested them. They threw them in jail. But in the text we saw last Sunday, it was really kind of wonderful, wasn't it? Very casually, the text mentions that an angel got them out of prison. There they were, locked up in a jail. Angel comes, unlocks the door, doesn't disturb the guards, locks the door behind them, and they're gone. And instead of running for their lives, what did the apostles do? They went right back to the temple mount and started that preaching work all over again. The very same thing that got them into trouble in the first place, they went back and they did it with even more strength and with even greater prominence because they knew that's what God wanted them to do. So what happened? Just like a broken record... Can I even say that anymore? Broken record? (laughs) Do people even know what a broken record's like? Isn't that strange how these, it just... Anyway, for those of you of age enough to know what I mean by a broken record, they were arrested right over again, just right on pace, and there they are, they're taken by the authorities, and that's where we pick it up here. They're going to appear before this council of religious leaders. Verse 27. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council. And the high priest asked them, saying, Did we not strictly command you not to teach in this name? And look, you have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine and intend to bring this man's blood on us. The high priest was mad. There he sits in the midst of this council of religious leaders. Uh, almost certainly, this is the Sanhedrin that, that official Congress or parliament of religious leaders among the Jewish people at that time, there at their headquarters in Jerusalem. And, and these were the men who had the solemn responsibility for sort of discerning the direction and guarding the people of Israel from danger. Oh no, it wasn't an illegitimate inquiry that they were making, that they should have investigated this. But, but God was showing this counsel, showing the high priest over and over again the truth of what the apostles were saying. And yet the high priest, just like so many people, God was speaking to him, but he was closing his ears to what God was saying to him. And so now what do they do? Well, as often happens, when people close their ears to God, what often happens? They get angry. And this man's angry. And very pointedly, what does he say? There they are right before the council. By the way, just imagine for a moment what an what intimidating scene that would have been. Here's these 12 apostles. They have no power in a human way. They don't have the authority. They don't have the money. They don't have the traditions. They don't have the backing. There they are. They're the, the, the powerless people. The council, they're the powerful people. Every attempt is made to sort of intimidate them with the trappings of the council's institutional authority. But, but the apostles knew something. They knew that if God protected them before, he would protect them again as it was his pleasure, right? I suppose, just maybe within 24 hours before that, an angel coming and miraculously freeing you from prison, that would give you some confidence, wouldn't it? You just think, listen, if God wants me free, He can set me free any anytime. Uh, angel, high priest. Angel, I'll, I'll trust the Lord. I just don't have to worry about the high priest. I saw an angel within the last 24 hours. And so there they were, just with this great confidence, and as they oppressed them, or excuse me, as they, they addressed them there before that camp, the high priest began to speak. Now I just want to say one more thing about this council. I'm going to speculate with you just for a moment, but I, I want you to know I don't regard this as wild speculation. Let's call this mild biblical speculation. I'm going to give a mild speculation here that a man named Saul of Tarsus sat among that council. We know that he was a prominent, young, uh, religious leader among the Jewish people at that time. We know that he held a leadership role because of what we see him doing later in the book of Acts. We haven't even been introduced to Paul yet, or excuse me, Saul. We are going to be introduced to him later. And it's also mentioned later, and Saul, who was later, took his favorite, I should say, his Greek name, Paul... He says something very revealing in Acts chapter 26. He mentions how he cast a vote against the early Christians. Now, what would Saul of Tarsus, how would he ever have the opportunity to cast a vote against the early Christians unless he was a member of this council? To to me, it's not wild speculation To to me, it's a very, very mild speculation to say that among this council was a prominent young Jewish rabbi, a rising star in their world named Saul of Tarsus. Now, I just want you to think about this. How did the speech of Peter and the rest of the apostles, how did it affect Saul at this time? Just keep that in mind as we continue to go through here. The, the high priest speaks with great anger. He says, did we not strictly command you not to teach in this name? Now, they had commanded Peter and John to no longer teach in the name of Jesus. By the way, it was only Peter and John that they commanded. I imagine that the other ten apostles kind of said, well, you didn't say anything to me. But no, no, they, they, he knew what the, the idea was. They, they were not supposed to do this. But at the very time they gave even Peter and John that command... Peter and John openly told them that they would continue to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. Even though it was disobedient to the command of the council, it was obedient to God. And they laid out this principle. They said it's more important for us to obey God rather than man. But did you see what else they said there? And you find this here in verse 28, if you look carefully at it, it says right there plainly, he says, did we not strictly command you not to teach in this name? And look, you have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine. Now, you got to say that the accusation of the high priest was really a wonderful testimony of the effectiveness of the apostles. I imagine, it's just my crazy imagination, that the apostles looked back and forth at each other when the high priest made this accusation. And they said, "Filled Jerusalem. Really? You think so? We, that's been a good job, man. We've really done well. This was a pat on the back. Their message had filled Jerusalem. But then he said something else at the end of verse 28. You intend to bring this man's blood on us. Now there's a couple things I want you to see. First of all, I want you to see how strenuously the high priest avoids saying the name Jesus. Jesus. This man, that guy, this name, what's his name? Whatever he can do to avoid saying the name Jesus, he does. It's almost as if he's terrified to say the name Jesus. I have found this in some people who have yet to believe. They find it difficult to think about Jesus. And that's what I would want you to do more than anything. If you have not yet really surrendered your life to Jesus Christ, if you understand that there's this Christian thing, and you're sort of on the outside of it, and you haven't really entered into that same realm of belief, the first and most important thing for you to do is to think about Jesus. Who he is and what he did. Listen, Being a Christian is not primarily about joining a church and being a part of a Christian club. That's not the idea. The idea is dealing with Jesus, who he is and what he's done. And here's the great part about that. Jesus is amazing. Jesus is wonderful. I don't know, there's very few people throughout history who have looked at Jesus and said, I don't like that guy. Now, People will look at the church and say sometimes they don't like the church. And sometimes they say that for good reasons, and sometimes it's for not so good reasons that they say that. Listen, look at Jesus. Isn't it remarkable how the high priest does everything he can to avoid simply saying the name in verse 28? It's this man's blood upon us. But then there's a second thing I need to look at at the end of verse 28, where it just says, you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. I believe that's a very interesting charge to make. Now, the high priest no doubt meant that the apostles intended, or at least he believed they intended, to hold the Jewish leaders responsible in some measure for the execution of Jesus. And I think that that's clear. They've said that before. In Acts chapter 2, verse 23, Peter very boldly said, and you're responsible for this, and you sent him to Pilate to be crucified. Yet we know that the apostles must have desired for the high priest and for everybody else at that council and for all of the Jewish leaders at that time to come to faith in Jesus as some of the other priests later did. For certain, they did want to bring the blood of Jesus upon them in the sense of the covering, cleansing blood of Jesus upon the high priest and others in the council. You see, here is the way that the high priest is using it and the way that the apostles would think of it. Blood is used here in a a, uh, uh, symbolic, in a a picturesque way, is it not? Nobody's thinking for a moment that somebody could take the actual physical blood of Jesus and sprinkle a few drops on somebody, then that would mean salvation for somebody. I mean, think about it. If that were the case, would not the Roman soldiers who crucified Jesus himself and had his blood splattered upon them, would not they be automatically saved? But no, here, as it is so often in the scriptures, and it is in our own manner of speaking, blood stands for life. And it was the life of Jesus that they were responsible for sending to the cross. But it was the life of Jesus that they need accounted to them so that they can be made right with God. Yes, Peter and the other apostles desperately wanted that for the religious leaders. Now look at what the apostles say in response to this angry outburst from the high priest. It begins here now at verse 29 where we read. But Peter and the other apostles answered and said, We ought to obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you murdered by hanging on a tree. Him God has exalted to his right hand to be prince and savior, to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are as witnesses to these things. And so also is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. Wow, there's a lot for us to unpack in those just four verses. First of all, notice the boldness of Peter and the apostles. This was great boldness because they said, We ought to obey God rather than men. You see, in contrast to this religious council, to the Sanhedrin at that time, who was more concerned about man's opinion than God's opinion, the apostles said, no, we're going to do it God's way. We're going to obey God rather than man. And I think it's fascinating here that the apostles' response to the council, it's not really a defense. They're not defending their actions. Nor was it a plea for mercy. Oh, high priest, please have mercy on us. Just let us keep doing what we're doing. No. It's a simple explanation of their actions. Listen, high priest, I want you to know what we're doing out there in the temple. Here's the message we're preaching, and we want you to hear it as well. I find it fascinating that the New Testament teaches us that we should submit to those who are in authority over us. Do you understand that? The Bible describes this. It talks about this realm of authority and submission in the Christian life. It says that there are just some particular responsibilities for submission. There's particular responsibilities of submission in the home of a Christian, right? Of children to parents and of wives to husbands. There's particular responsibilities of submission in your workplace. As the Bible describes about for those who work unto those who they work for. There's particular responsibilities for submission in the body of Christ in church life and in the community. The Bible says that we should submit to the governing authorities. Read it in Romans chapter 13. No, there is a place for legitimate submission in the Christian life. But this is what we find. We find that the biblical commands for submission on the human level are never absolute. And they're never more important than submission to God. In other words, if I'm an employee at a particular place, God tells me that I should submit to my boss. But if my boss tells me to do something sinful, then I need to obey God rather than man. The Bible tells me that I'm to submit as a child or in my home or, or, or as a citizen of the community. But the Bible also tells me I'm supposed to obey God rather than man. And so if, if for some reason... My government would tell me, no, you can't do this. No, you're going to pay a penalty if you do something. Then I should obey God rather than man. If my government should tell me that there are certain topics that the Bible clearly speaks about that are forbidden for me to speak about, I'm going to ignore that. Now, if I ignore it, I'll have to take my lumps from the government. Will I not? I'll have to just man up and say, look, I'm going to do what I'm going to do. And if you got a penalty for me, then I'll take the penalty. But I'm going to obey God rather than man. Now, this is the whole point. The call for submission on a human level is never absolute because God always comes first. And that's exactly what the apostles were declaring right here. Mr. High Priest, you are an authority in Israel. You you are an authority among the Jewish people, among which Peter and the rest of the apostles consider themselves thoroughly within that stream. They said, we understand that you have an authority that we're to submit to, but the command of God is more important to us than your command. And Jesus has commanded us to tell everybody about who he is and what he's done. That's what they were going to do. And then he launches into this explanation. If you notice here, verse 30, he says, The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you murdered by hanging on a tree. He began a very faithful uh, declaration of just some of the basics of the Christian faith. First of all, he talks about the guilt of man. Did you notice that? The high priest said, "Hey, you're trying to blame us for the death of Jesus." And do you see what he says right there in verse thirty? "You murdered him by hanging him on a tree." Wow, that's bold, isn't it? But he wants him to know what well, God wants every one of us to know—that we are guilty before God. You know, as a a preacher, if that's what you want to call me, I I, I don't disdain the title. But if a preacher stands before an audience of people and, and speaks to people about the things of God, he always has to make a choice about what kind of words he's going to use. And, and one of the words that, that, that sometimes people wonder if you should use when you're talking to people about God and our responsibility to him is that great word, sin. Because if you think about it, it's a very old-fashioned word, is it not? Who, who uses the word sin in common conversation? If sin is used in common conversation, it's usually used about something that's bad, but really good, right? Like, you know, a hot fudge Sunday. Oh, it's sinfully delicious. You say, as you're gulping it down. And so you, you think about this word sin. Maybe sin is not a word that should be in the preacher's vocabulary. Maybe it's an old word, it's an archaic word. Maybe you should just try to express the idea in different words. But you know, at this point in time, I don't think so. I think that when I say the word sin, that even if you've never opened a Bible in your life, you know what I'm talking about. I think you know what I mean. I think you know that I'm talking about the fact that you miss the mark with God. Really, that's what the idea of sin is, isn't it? There's a target and you miss the mark. You err. You don't hit the target that God intends for you to hit. And I believe that there's no real misunderstanding. I think there's uncomfortableness with that word sin. But there's no real misunderstanding. Peter spoke to the high priest and all the council very clearly about their sin, he pointed it out and he said, You murdered Jesus. You hung him on a tree. Hanging him on a tree was the phrase he used. So he spoke to them about the guilt of man. He also spoke to him about the death of Jesus. He spoke of Jesus hanging on a tree. And he said, Well, wait a minute. I thought Jesus died on a cross, not on a tree. No, let me explain this to you. Peter referred to the cross as a tree because he was drawing an association from the Old Testament, from the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 21. It says right there that a person hanged from a tree is cursed by God. And Peter brought attention to the magnitude of their rejection of Jesus, pointing out that they killed him. Not only did they kill him, they killed him in the worst way possible, bringing a a Roman perspective, killing a person on the cross was the worst way, but bringing also from a Hebrew perspective, hanging them from a tree, brought the curse of God upon that person. And in Jesus, both of those were fulfilled. So I spoke to him about man's guilt, about Jesus' death. He spoke to him about Jesus' resurrection. Did you notice it right there? Verse 30, the God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you murdered. Jesus rose him from the dead. Excuse me, the father rose him from the dead. And he goes even further by saying there in verse 31, him God has exalted to his right hand to be prince and savior You rejected him, but the Father in heaven completely accepted him. And then he spoke briefly about man's responsibility to respond. If you look at it there in verses 31 and 32, to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. You, Mr. High Priest, if you will repent, if you will receive the gift of repentance right now from God, then he will forgive your sins. Now, I find this to be a very clear, a very cogent, a very to-the-point explanation of some of the basics of the Christian faith. Man's guilt, Jesus' death, Jesus' resurrection, and man's responsibility to respond. And the high priest heard it right there. And then just to put put a little bit on the top of it all, notice what he says there in verse 32. He says, and we are his witnesses. I imagine Peter just making full eye contact with the high priest when he says this. And we are his witnesses to these things. And so also is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. Mr. High Priest, I've made some dramatic statements right in front of you. I told you that you're guilty before God. I've told you that Jesus died on the cross. And I told you that he rose from the dead. And I told you that you are responsible to respond to the truth of who Jesus is and what he's done. And you may be wondering, how do you know that what I'm saying is true? I'll tell you how I know it, Mr. High Priest. I know it because I'm an eyewitness of these things. This isn't vain speculation. I heard it. I saw it. I saw Jesus die on the cross. I saw him rise from the dead. Friends, let's admit, eyewitness testimony is extremely compelling, is it not? Is that not tremendous evidence? And some of us have a way of dismissing eyewitness testimony because it's kind of old. But you know, if eyewitness testimony was valid 2,000 years ago, it's valid today. As long as you have a good record of it, as long as it's established, it's in the record. It's been read into the court, so to speak. And this would have been the perfect time, would it not have been, for an objector to stand up from amongst the council. Well, that's not true. Uh, Jesus never rose from the dead. Here's his body laying out there in a common grave. It wasn't that long ago that it happened. It wouldn't have been rotted away yet. You see, but there was no uh, opposition that could be offered at that point. We are his witnesses. That was a reliable testimony because it was based on eyewitness testimony and also confirmed by God. I love what he says there in verse 32. And also the Holy Spirit whom God has given. I'll give you another witness to the truth of this. It's the Holy Spirit of God. And as he looked the high priest in the eye, he said, how else do you think that we got sprung out of jail? How else do you think that we have this supernatural boldness to preach this message? The Holy Spirit's confirming this message as well. Now, this would have been an incredibly dramatic scene. Can you just imagine the tension in that council chamber at this moment, right? The high priest was angry. Peter was bold. He didn't answer like a man with his tail between his legs. But he said, No, I'm going to declare to you the truth right here. And he declared it. And what was the response? Look at it. Verse 33. Verse 33 is a little stunning. And when they heard this, they were furious and plotted to kill them. Who was the they who were furious? Now, by the way, let me just say, your Bible translation might not say furious, because actually, literally, it talks there about being cut to the heart. And so your Bible translation might say that. Now, sometimes that idea of cut to the heart has the connotation of furious. So I don't think furious is an illegitimate or a wrong translation there at all. But the idea is these guys are so cut to the heart that they respond in anger. And I think you could say pretty safely they were angry. You don't plot murder against other people unless you're angry, right? They were so cut to the heart. They were so furious that they started plotting the death of the apostles. Peter and the apostles had clearly and briefly explained to them again the core ideas of who Jesus is and what he had done for all of us on the cross and how they should respond. And their reaction was with furious anger. We can only imagine what went through their minds. Who are you to tell us to repent? We don't need this forgiveness that you speak of. Don't blame us for the death of Jesus. Or how about this one? Don't you know who we are? None of that mattered to Peter and the apostles. They delivered the message faithfully. And in response, verse 33 says, they plotted to kill them. Right then, the death of the apostles was set in motion. We had not previously read that this council wanted to kill them, but now we read it. I think it's awesome to think about this. That most likely, and here I go back to my mild speculation, one of those plotting to kill the apostles, one of those furious at the words that Peter said was Saul of Tarsus. I just want you to notice something here. Peter's clear and powerful presentation of the gospel did not change the heart of Saul of Tarsus right then, right? Matter of fact, it seemed to be an evangelistic failure, I don't read of anybody being converted right here on this day. Peter preached a message, but nobody responded. But Listen, God was at work within the heart of Saul of Tarsus. And could not that anger from this council indicate that, that a mark has been hit, right? That something has been touched deep inside. And Saul would react, as we're going to see in the later chapters of the book of Acts, in just a few chapters as we make our way there we're going to see that their reaction was this violence and Saul's reaction specifically. It shows that something had been touched very deeply there. Well, here's the advice from one man on the council here. A very interesting passage beginning at verse 34. Then one in the council stood up, a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in respect by all the people and commanded them to put the apostles outside for a little while. And he said to them, men of Israel, take heed to yourselves what you intend to do regarding these men. Could, could you just pause for a minute here? How did Luke know what Gamaliel said to the council with all of the apostles out of the room? Because maybe a guy named Saul of Tarsus, who later emphasized his Roman name Paul, was right there in the midst. And he told Luke, ooh, ooh, I've got to tell you this, what happened when Gamaliel said this? Anyway, back to verse 35. I, I get excited about these little things. Verse 35, and he said to the men of Israel, take heed to yourselves what you d- intend to do regarding these men. For some time ago, Thutius rose up claiming to be somebody. A number of men, about 400, joined him. He was slain and all who obeyed him were scattered and came to Nothing. After this man, Judas of Galilee, rose up in the days of the census and drew away many people after him. He also perished, and all who obeyed him were dispersed. And now I say to you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this work is of men, it will come to nothing. But if it is of God, you cannot overthrow it, lest you be found to fight against God. Now, this man, Gamaliel, who stood up, he was one of the most esteemed rabbis of that day. Matter of fact, he was given the title Rabban. Now, Rabban means our teacher. You would call a Jewish teacher of that time, Rab, which means teacher, or Rabbi, my teacher. That was a step above. But for the most notable, the most lauded uh, rabbis of that day, they called them Rabban, our teacher. And he's praised in Jewish writings of that time and later. And he was a Pharisee. Even though the Sadducees had more uh, political power, it was important to hear from the Pharisees on this. And he begins a very interesting analysis, right? He says, listen guys, let's not act too hastily. Do you remember what happened to this guy Thudius before? And then you remember what this guy, Judas of Galilee. Now, very interestingly, Josephus, the Jewish historian, mentioned a Thudius who led a rebellion, but at a later point than this. It could be that Josephus had his dates mixed up, or it could be a different Thutius altogether. It was a fairly common name at that time. But but Josephus does describe a Judas of Galilee, who may be the very same one mentioned here. These guys who would start up these petty rebellions again and again. It was a common thing in the days of the New Testament. But his real point is found for us right there in verses 38 and 39, right? He says, if this plan or this work is of men, it will come to nothing. But if it is of God, you cannot overthrow it, lest you be found to fight against God. Now, I've got a question for you here. Was Gamaliel true or false in what he said? The answer is yes. <laughs> he was kind of true and he was kind of false. I would say that the true part of what he said is this. If God is for something, man can't overcome it. Do we believe that? We absolutely we do. If God is for it, there's no point in fighting against it, right? Your arms are too short to box with God. Give it your best shot. You're never gonna work it out, right? However, I think that, that or excuse me that Gamalia was wrong on another scale is that sometimes things that are very much of man can seem to last a long time and have a lot of influence. You see, I would say in this respect, Gamaliel spoke for himself and not for God. There are many movements that may be considered successful in the sight of man, but they are against God's truth. Friends, success is not the ultimate measure of truth. Gamaliel really was a fence-sitter. You see, he spoke as if they should wait and see whether or not the apostles were really from God. But what greater testimony did they actually need? They had Jesus' death on the cross. They had Jesus' resurrection. They had the apostles' miracles. They had it all right before them. Gamaliel had plenty enough evidence to make up his mind, but still he adopted a, well, let's wait and see kind of attitude. Friends, I have to tell you that that's wrong. If you're not a Christian today, why? Sometimes we we turn it around on ourselves, don't we? We speak with people about the Christian life and our attitude is this. Well, let me explain to you why I'm a Christian. And that's fine. But sometimes it's good just to turn it around. So you're not a follower of Jesus Christ? Why not? Who wouldn't want to be a follower of Jesus? How can you possibly explain this? Is there not enough evidence that He loves you? Is there not enough evidence that He died on the cross and that He rose from the dead? Is there not enough evidence that He's a loving, caring Savior? Is there not enough evidence that you need your sins forgiven? Evidence, evidence, evidence. And Gamaliel looked at all of that evidence and said, well, let's wait for more evidence. I think He had enough. I think you have enough to make a decision. Gamaliel proposed the test of time. And that is an important test. But you know what's more important than the test of time? It's the test of eternity. And eternity testifies to the fact and the truth of the gospel. Let's finish up the chapter starting in verse 40. And they agreed with him. And when they had called for the apostles and beaten them, they commanded them that they should not speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. So they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer for his shame, for his name. And daily in the temple and every house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. They were unstoppable. But did you notice something? It's very interesting how the Bible presents these things to us. It's mentioned very casually almost, right? Let me read again, verse 40. And they agreed with him, and when they had called for the apostles and beaten them, they commanded them, and, whoa, beaten them? Do you know what the word there in the original language is for beaten? It can be translated skinned. Now, I'm not proposing that they actually skinned them, but it gives you an idea of the severity of the beating that they received. Many people were maimed for life after such beatings. This was a severe beating that they received. And the text passes over it almost as if it was like nothing. And then look at verse 42. That yes, they're right back out preaching bloody backs and all. Now, I don't know about you. But if I was whipped severely for the sake of Jesus, I would be moaning about it for years. Right? Just about, I'd sneak it in in just about every sermon. <laughs> to me, that would be the biggest deal of my life. For these guys, that's nothing. Now, I don't want to minimize the suffering they endured. It was real. But what I find amazing about this is the perspective that they had it in. Look at it again in verse 42. They did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. Whatever beating, whatever shameful treatment the Sanhedrin gave them, it did absolutely no good. The disciples didn't stop preaching for a moment, but they continued on that work. I have to say, this challenges me. And I hope it challenges you. You know, when you think about suffering that you and I endure in our following of God... And I know, I know that there are many people here who suffer greatly. Some people suffer in different ways. You you suffer under a a physical ailment. You you suffer under great temptation. You, You suffer under a rejection from family and friends. You suffer under economic hardship. You suffer under uh, uh, just mental and, and emotional ailments that other people don't seem to be able to relate to. And I don't want to memorize your suffering for a moment. It's real. I just want you to put it into perspective. The apostles had some real suffering delivered upon them. But for them, Jesus was even more important. I'm not trying to make your suffering seem small. No, it's your suffering. And all of our suffering seems big to us. I'm just trying to make your Jesus seem even bigger. Let Jesus be bigger than even the suffering. You have endured, you are enduring, or you will endure. That's what the apostles did. And absolutely refuse to be quiet about who Jesus is and what he did for you. I feel I would be... Uh, wrong if I didn't close this message with just a very straightforward invitation for anybody here this morning who would like to give their life to Jesus Christ. I've spoken about it very plainly, I think, with you. I think I've made it very plain about man's guilt, about what Jesus did on the cross for us, how on the cross he bore our sin, he bore our shame, he, he bore the judgment that we deserve from God. That Jesus rose from the dead to show you that he conquered it all on the cross. And that now we're responsible to surrender our life to him. If you're waiting for a more evidence from God, I wonder if you're not just a fence sitter and you're not just delaying what you should do right now. No, instead, you should yield your life to Jesus Christ right now. Because he loves you. He cares for you. And you're responsible before God to do the right thing. So I'm going to pray right now, and in the midst of my prayer, I'm going to give just that kind of invitation. Father in heaven, I'm amazed at the way that these apostles took such a big thing as being beaten very severely, and to them it seemed to be a small thing. At least small in comparison to how big Jesus was.